One of the most important things that a mother wants for her kids is that they love one another. Isn't that true? Do I see some head nods? Yes, yes. That they get along with each other. That they at least speak civil to one another. No snarky speech, right? This was Kitty's number one prayer when our four were growing up. And now that all of them are grown and out of the house, it is still high on her prayer list. But how fitting is it for us today to be looking at this passage of Scripture with Mother's Day being here? Now, you know, a lot of people would think, well, we need to have a, 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 a sermon just for mothers. Well, who we come to worship? We come to worship the Lord. And so we're going to continue on with, with 1 Corinthians, but I do think it's very fitting that we do look at this today. Now, whether a mother has had children naturally or whether adopted them, or even a woman who is barren has, is considered mother to the neighborhood. It's important to see your kids get along very well, isn't it? And it's for fathers too, I would add, being a father. But it's important to the heavenly father also. How many of us have not read where Jesus is telling his disciples the importance of love between spiritual siblings? The one who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And the one who has said, I and the Father are one, also says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, to you as disciples, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In today's passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13, Paul, in essence, says, love is what you as Christians need to be about. Love, unity, those things need to go together. And so, you know, open your scripture, open your Bible, copy the word of God, paper or pixel, you know, to open it up. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 8. Also, we're going to be looking at Romans 1 and Matthew 24 and 25. So just kind of let you know where we're going today. Throughout this chapter, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians how to love one another. And it goes something like this. When you differ with your brother, with your sister, about the non-essential things, give them a lot of grace. No snarky talk. No force feeding of issues. Walk with your brother. Walk with your sister at a pace that is right for him, right for her. What's Paul talking about in this passage? He gives us a clue in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now that's an interesting topic, isn't it? See, the Christians, Corinthians, had religious questions that they needed Paul to answer. Now, we don't know exactly how that question was posed. But once again, Paul apparently detected there was some disunity among them. So let's read verses 1 to 3 to find this out, to discover it. Now, food, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, yet he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, in a nutshell... Paul sees a religious tug-of-war going on among the Corinthian believers. Knowledge 
and love. See, Paul detects here something that, uh, that, that some people have it all figured out when it comes to this food sacrifice to idols thing. And they feel, feel it's their moral duty to tell others what they should believe about these things. But Paul gives the antidote to knowledge used as a bludgeon to actually destroy relationships. And that antidote is love. Overcoming knowledge of the puffed up kind with love of the divine kind is a key to unlock what is going on in this chapter. And we're going to see it as we go along. Though meat offered to idols is the question, Paul sees a bigger issue here. Again, it's unity. Again, it's love. And I can just hear Paul saying under his breath as he writes his answers, can't you guys get along with one another? Can't you have unity? Can't you love each other? Now, we're going to see Paul patiently working with the Corinthian believers in the fine art of loving one another as he answers the question of what a Christian is supposed to do regarding meat that has outlived its religious purpose. Now, we might think that, that meat has got anything that has to do with religion at all, but there it was a big deal. It was used by worshipers of pagan religions as part of their religious practices. And so the question is, to partake or not to partake? That's the question of the hour for the Christians in Corinth. So today we're going to see three aspects of how Paul instructs them to love one another in truth in this chapter. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see knowledge versus love. In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see the truth of the matter. And then verses 7 to 13, we're going to see the application of truth in verses 7 to 13. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Paul detected a certain degree of arrogance when it came to some of the Corinthians regarding the matter of food sacrificed to idols. In verse 1, he agreed with them about the heart of the issue that Paul's going to unpack a little bit later, which is the knowledge of who the true and living God is. Now, some of the Corinthian Christians took the truth like duck to the water. They drank in everything Paul taught them about the nature of the only true God. I can imagine these believers when they first heard Paul present the truth about God and the gospel of Christ, they immediately turned to the Lord and never looked back. These brothers were the kind that would stand strong against all those who would worship other idols, other gods like Apollo or Aphrodite or even the emperor Nero himself. See, they all had temples, and they all had pagan religious rituals, which included offering food to their statues. And what these brothers discovered is that Christ fulfilled their their hunger for reality. And the apostles, too, remember, in the days of Jesus' ministry, they discovered that as well. Remember the time when Jesus fed 5,000 men and women and children besides? Probably about 30,000 people he fed. Though he fed them, he also told them the truth that was in their words, hard to listen to. And eventually, all of these people walked away from Jesus, except for the disciples. And Jesus asked them, he says, you don't want to walk away too, do you? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There was spiritual reality 
there in Jesus. And so for these Christian believers, these Corinthian believers, because they know the only true God, none of the religious practices that they so diligently performed before mean nothing to them now, to include offering food on pagan altars. And so in the marketplace, these Christians bought perfectly good cuts of meat, though they were used in pagan rituals, because to them, meat is meat. Isn't that true for us? Meat is meat, yes. But that's one side of these committed Corinthian believers. That's just one side. Because as we all know, when a person has a strength, there's a corresponding weakness. Unlike God, who has no weaknesses, we have weaknesses along with our strength. And how many of you know what I'm talking about? You've seen people with a lot of strengths, but now a lot of weaknesses on the other side. How about you? Are you like that? You have a daughter, for example, who's so very compliant as she grows up. She's a model kid, head and shoulders above her sibling brothers. Now, her brothers are not nearly as compliant as she is. And in typical sibling rivalry fashion, they say to each other, you know, if I hear Janie say, yes, mother dear, one more time, I'm going to do some harm. And time marches on. And Janie grows up. And so do her brothers. But when she grows up, Janie's compliance turns into some really extreme uncertainty about life. And she can't make a decision on her own precisely because her mother told her exactly what to do. And she said over and over again, yes, mother dear. But how many boys do you know about? Or maybe even have one of your own whose will is stronger than iron. You can't wait till he leaves the nest. And as life goes on, though, he becomes an extremely strong leader, and his will of iron has become his ally. You know anybody like that? Well, the brother with knowledge about the true nature of God has a lot of zeal. Now, some of it's because the Lord profoundly changed him. And some of it's because he has a naturally forceful personality. So much so that in his zeal, he often steamrolls over another who Paul has described as a person with a weak conscience. And by the time Brother Knowledge gets through with Brother Conscience, there is a lot of problem in the church. And you understand what I'm talking about. You understand this picture here. Well, Paul begins to pull Brother Knowledge up close and personal. And they begin to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, a sharp rebuke. In essence, Paul says, Brother, though you know the Lord, you know him about the truth, you've lost focus. It's not knowledge that you need to zero in on, but you need to zero in on love. For knowledge misused puffs up or produces pride. But, brother, love is the key. Love builds up, builds up the other person. And brother knowledge, the foundation of even our relationship with God is not our knowledge about him, but it's our love relationship with him. This is to be the motivation. This is to be the foundation upon which you relate to your brother, to your sister in Christ. To love. The word is agape. It can be described as loyalty to the other person, a commitment to helping a Christian brother or sister 
to meet their needs. It is always showing the character qualities of patience, of kindness, of integrity, rejoicing in what is true, and so many other things found in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, Paul reminding the Corinthian believers that love, rather than a so-called misused knowledge, as a foundation for unity is how he begins this chapter. And now Paul walks with them again through the truth of who God is and what it means in answer to the question that they ask him about in verses 4 to 6. So let's look at that. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. These are some of the statements that they themselves understood. And these are some of the things that Paul actually reminded them. This is what you guys believe. For although there may, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In this section, Paul affirms the truth Brother Knowledge clung to and zealously promoted. And Paul reminds them just what an idol is or isn't and of who God and his Christ is and are. Now, here's the truth. Idols have no real existence. There is no God but one. There are many objects that people worship and point out as worthy of worship, according to them. They are even called gods. They're even called lords. But let's stop right here and let's take this in for a second. See, herein lies the truth about the nature of God. There is one God alone. Is that not right? Now, any religion that claims there is more than one God alone is a false religion, a false object of worship, regardless of how sincerely one believes it to be true. It is still false. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the essence of, When a person does not worship the creator of all things, he worships an object that the creator creates. And so I want us to turn to Romans chapter 1. I want us to see this here. So chapter chapter 1 of Romans, verses 18 to 23. And uh, sorry, I don't have the page number written down here. But chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Here is God's indictment through Paul about the nature of God and about what happens, we who live in rebellion against him, how we respond to him. Chapter 1, verse 18, starting. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The truth is, we either 
worship the creator or some aspect of his creation. Every one of us does. And so Paul is affirming here. He's affirming brother knowledge. But let's go further, even more exclusively into the nature of God. And let's look at verse 6 yet again. Let's turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what's Paul saying? That there is one and only one God, the creator of all things. Everyone and everything owe their very existence to him. Now, it's great to contemplate on the glory of the one true God, isn't it? It's great. Now, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity also claim to worship one deity, but they all make different truth claims. Isn't that amazing? You think about God, one God, but these three different religions have different truth claims. For example, Islam denies the Trinity, as we see in Scripture, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They deny this. See, they believe that Allah is one God, one person. That's it. Judaism holds to the idea that Messiah is going to come and make things all right with the world one day. And that is true. But Paul goes even further. He says, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, God of very God, who is co-eternal along with God the Father. That's Jesus. And that's why we, we recited the Nicene Creed this morning to remind us of this. So what is Paul driving at? Paul preached the truth, and the Corinthians now possess it. They believe the truth. And the multiplied thousands in Corinth, of the thousands who worship at the many temples and offer many sacrifices in the city, the only one truly worthy of worship is the one creator God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. So, brother knowledge must feel pretty good about his interaction with Paul so far. He has affirmed them and affirmed his position. He has the truth, and he lives it out. And his conviction is that since idols are nothing, he has no scruples about buying this meat from the marketplace, which, as everybody knows, it's the pagan temples that is the only supply chain. But enter, Brother Conscience. This follower of Jesus has been radically saved, just like Brother Knowledge. He, too, has turned his back on the ways of the world. But there's a huge difference between Brother Conscience and Brother Knowledge, whereas Brother Knowledge has a strong personality, as I mentioned before. Brother Conscience has a more sensitive orientation to life. And Brother Conscience is perhaps even more sensitive to spiritual things than his Brother Knowledge. Because Brother Conscience is very aware of the spiritual world and the power of evil forces. But Brother Knowledge is so enamored with being set free from the bondage of evil that he has sort of forgotten of the evil that held him captive in his younger days, in his B.C. days. Brother Knowledge has a weakness. He's prone to personal spiritual freedom at the expense of others in the body of Christ who are not like him. See, he's so free and he's so forceful that if he sees others not enjoying the freedom that he is experiencing, he pushes his agenda without regard for where the other person is. Do you know anybody like that? 
Brother conscience, though, sees things just as vividly as brother knowledge. But he is more hesitant in all those times that he worshiped at a pagan altar when he was a non-Christian haunts him even as a Christian. The reality of evil is just as real in the mind and the heart of brother conscience as is salvation in Christ. Every time he sees the people worship in the many temples in Corinth, he has a visceral reaction. Every time he sees the display of meat in the marketplace, knowing where it came from, memories of how he offended holy God come flooding back. And so when his more forceful brother invites him over for dinner, guess what brother knowledge serves him? You got it. The best steaks money can buy. And you can imagine what kind of evening these two brothers would have together. But because brother conscience wants to be friends with brother knowledge, because they're both Christians, does he refuse to eat the meat? Nope, he does not. He eats it, but his self-awareness, his sensitivity to sin comes into a huge clash with what's on his plate. Brother Conscience imagines he's actually engaging in pagan worship because the meat was offered to a pagan god. That's his struggle, and it is real to him. So what to do with this? This may have been part of what prompted the question in the first place that they were asking Paul. Now in verse 8, Paul continues his answer, and it is a simple, straightforward one. In verse 8 it says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. As important as fellowship around the table is, think about all the food rules that if you were living in, in, the, in Corinth in, 20, in the first century, if you were a believer with a Jewish background, you had all of these kosher laws. You couldn't eat shellfish and all that kind of stuff. And again, if you were a Gentile believer who came out of paganism, this issue of meat that was used as part of pagan religious rituals loomed large with you as you fellowship with other believers. And so this, I would imagine, would be liberating news that it doesn't matter, even though we take it for granted in the 21st century, that it really doesn't matter to God what we eat. Isn't that an amazing thing? See, Christ declared this when he explained this saying about it's not what comes into our mouth is a problem, but what comes out of our mouth in Mark 7. Here's what he says. Then also are you not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated? And Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. But in verses 9 to 12, Paul now warns brother knowledge. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, and by the way, the way that's constructed is, it means like for an example, doesn't mean for real, it's like a hypothetical question. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience that's weak, you sin against Christ. And so what is Paul's warning? In a nutshell, he says, brother knowledge, 
You've got the freedom in Christ to eat meat that was associated with a pagan ritual. And you're correct in your conviction that there's only one God. And yes, your understanding of worship is warranted. But when you choose to exercise your spiritual freedom, you need to remember that you have a brother who is much more sensitive than you are about this matter. And especially when you try to break him out of what you see as a spiritual prison, you are destroying your brother. You're wounding his understanding of what walking with Jesus is all about. And you are sinning against your brother. And when you do this, brother knowledge, you're also sinning against Christ. See, he's the one that set both you and him free. And with your strong personality and stance, don't be so quick to convince him to come your way. Because the Lord Jesus does not take too kindly to those who sin against his people, to include his fellow servants. It was about a week before Jesus went to the cross. And as he and his disciples walked on the temple grounds, Jesus' disciples were in awe, and they were pointing out all the buildings of the temple grounds. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 2, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left stone, not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And by the way, if you want to follow along in Matthew 24, you may do so. But Matthew 24. And so the disciples ask him, Lord, when's all this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you coming back? And it was there that the Lord launched into what we know as the uh, tri- uh, a passage about the tribulation, the great tribulation, describing that. It's instructive for us to hear Jesus' two commands in this passage. He said, don't be deceived. And he also said, be ready. Be ready. For no one knows when he will return. And at that time, not even Jesus in his humanity knew when he was going to return. But he told them to be ready. And beginning at Matthew 24, 45 to 51, we hear these words. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And my friends, this is gentle Jesus speaking these words. This is nice guy Jesus talking this way. Just saying. And now Matthew 25 records three parables that the Lord told concerning and describing to them and to us what it means to be ready. Remember he said the the faithful and wise servant, right? The parable of the virgins, telling them and us what it means to be wise. The parable of the talents, telling them and us what it means to be faithful. And the parable of the sheep and goats, telling us and them what it means to be one of Jesus' true servants. So let's go to Matthew 25, 31 to 40, when we talk about Jesus' true servants, the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, 
that he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place his sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. These are the sheep saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Question. Who are the least of these Jesus refers to? Makes it very plain. It's his brothers. Least of these, my brothers, right? These are members of God's household. These are Jesus' brothers. In our way of saying it, fellow Christians. In other words, the sheep are those who treat their fellow sheep well. And so Paul gave to brother knowledge. Back to 1 Corinthians 8 a much-needed course correction. He told them, in essence, you want to prove that you're a sheep? You want to be ready when he comes back? Treat your fellow servant, brother conscience, with the same love and respect that you would treat the Lord Jesus. And in verse 13, Paul now gives not only the motivation, but also an example of what it means to treat one who Jesus describes as the least of these, in a manner that pleases the Lord, in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And in a word, Paul says, I will never go to the market. I will never purchase meat again for the sake of my brother's conscience, because when I serve the least of Christ's servants, his sheep, I have served Christ. Because I love the Lord, therefore, I will love my brother. And if need be, I will limit my freedom in Christ. It will be my privilege to serve my brother conscience. And so what are we to make of this passage, this inspired passage of Scripture for today? Because I can't tell you the last time I went to a meat market that had, had meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods. How about you? Let me apply this to our lives today. First, the principle is clear. Love is the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ between believers. We are to love our brother. We're to love our sister. Christ is the Lord and we are in the family because he allowed us to be here because of his grace and our faith in him. Every person who has repented of their sin and believed the gospel is related by blood. We're blood relations. But whose blood? The blood of Jesus. And that simply means this, that we are not allowed to love everybody except her or no matter or or everybody. But that one over there. No matter how much of a personality we have of a clash that we have with others, no matter how much of a bad chemistry we have with between a brother and sister, we are commanded 
to love the other person. Isn't that true? Go like this. Yes, yes. See, the same God who saved you, saved the one that you have an issue with. Second thing I want to point out is differences of opinion abound because every one of us is different, right? But how many of us live that way? How many of us expect that the person I'm standing before will have a difference of opinion? We don't do that, do we? We expect that person to have the same opinion. Why? Because I'm right. And the other person will say the same thing. I'm right, so I expect you the same opinion. Do we automatically assume that we share the same opinion? Now, it's great that when we do have an opinion that's the same, I mean, we can communicate, et cetera. We don't have to worry about battling with one another, et cetera. But would it be? What would life be like if we were so close to one another that we were almost like cloned? What would life be like if we had a clone that was with us all the time? That would be kind of, I'd say, uh, maybe a not-so-pleasant life. Third, there's an old statement, but it's true nonetheless. All ground is level at the foot of the cross. We need to see one another as equals, all standing or, or, in this case, all kneeling at the cross of Jesus. And that especially goes for when we have differing opinions about things that are not absolute essentials of the Christian life, about who God is, about who Christ is, even about who we are and what salvation is all about. Now, all of us who've done our homework, we have definite reasons for believing what we believe. Isn't that true? The God who allowed you, you ever think about this? The God who allowed you to have your opinion is the same God who allowed me to have mine. And, he's, and he accepts us. In other words, we are to treat others with love and respect. Love and respect. And everyone's supposed to treat me that way. I'm, I'm to treat you that way. But we're always seeking to understand the Scripture, though. We're supposed to be, you know, kind of grappling with this. But we do it as equals. And so briefly, let me give you just two of the many Many doctrinal issues that have divided Christians over the years and even today. The first one is, which day of the week is proper on which to worship the Lord? Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? That is still a thing going on nowadays. Now, there are two camps, those who believe in Saturday worship and those who believe in Sunday worship. And those who worship the Lord on Saturday do so because of the conviction that the Lord has not done away with the fourth commandment. Has he done away with the fourth commandment? It's still valid. Keep the Sabbath day holy. And also God rested on the seventh day from his creative work. And since we are made in his image, we are to rest and worship on the Sabbath. And try as one might, we cannot change Saturday Sabbath to Sunday Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Sabbath. We're talking Saturday here. But on the other hand, Paul said in Romans 14, 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another seems all days alike. Let each be convinced in his own mind. And, of course, the main reasons why the vast majority of Christians worship on Sunday is why? Because we worship the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's why we do this. So which is right? Did God rescind the fourth commandment? Or should we worship on Saturday and Sunday? Or do we do what Paul said? Treat every day alike or treat one day above another? 
And how do we act and even react when someone who has a very strong opinion is different than you and me comes to us and starts pushing his agenda? What would be Paul's counsel in this? Or what about a second one? What about one's view of the last days, especially the rapture of the church? Some believe very strongly that the rapture, the catching away of the church will happen before the seven-year tribulation. True? Some go, yes, absolutely. After all, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5. That's what he says. Some strongly believe that the rapture will happen at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. See, God's people are going to be out of here before it gets really bad. And others believe just as strongly that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. Kind of like a yo-yo thing, right? Jesus is going to appear in the clouds. God's people go up and they come right back down. Kind of like a yo-yo thing. Now, there's even a couple more positions, but you get the picture here. So who's right? And what do we do with fellow Christians who believe strongly but are like brother conscience and actually change positions based on who they are with because they don't want to offend? Or what do we do with those who very firmly hold to a preacher rapture, rapture view and practically see those who don't as being non-Christian? I know about those kinds of people. Maybe you do too. But what is most important, according to Paul? Knowledge puffs up, but love Builds up. John the Apostle was one of the original survivors. You know that's, that show, right, Survivor? He went through horrendous things, not the least of which, according to church tradition, he was boiled in oil and he lived to tell about it. And John went by several names and titles to include the Apostle of Love. And he was called that for a couple of reasons. First, John mentioned love more than any other New Testament writer, to include Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. And John wrote five books. Paul wrote 13. He, he wrote about love more than anybody else. And the second, the reason why he was called the apostle of love, was how he pastored the church in Ephesus. And whenever church members would come to him and brothers and sisters would have squabbles, he would say this to them, children, love one another. That's all he would say. Children, love one another. Interesting, isn't it? And by the way, the Holy Spirit inspired him to actually refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which is interesting because it ought to be the disciple who loved Jesus. But it was not that way. The disciple who loved Jesus, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. So as we finish the message today, if you still have a mom around, communicate to her. That you love her. Even if you're orphaned and you don't know your mom, remember that she's the one who chose you of all the people in the world to take you home and to be mother to you. Remember her. And finally, give thanks to the Heavenly Father. He's the one who invented families, you know. Fathers, mothers, made in His image reflecting his likeness. May we speak truth to one another because God is truth. May we love one another because God is love for the sake and the glory of our Lord Jesus, who is our Savior. He is the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word today.
Lord, you know that we are all different because you made us all different. Lord, you know we've got differences of opinions about all kinds of things. And Lord, you have commanded us, even though we're different, to get along with one another, to truly love one another. Lord Jesus, as you have loved us, to that degree that you've loved us, we are to love one another. That is your command. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the strength and the eyes and the wisdom to be able to do just that. We thank you, Lord, for this word today. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us as we go out into the world, that we will demonstrate that we are your disciples because we love fellow believers. Help us, Lord, to do that. We thank you, Lord, for the day. And we ask now, Lord, as we, as we sing our final song, that you'll help us to go out of there, out of here, worshiping you, praising you because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.